that's better. Good morning. Oh gosh. Today's reading is Luke 14, verses 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Parable of the lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Larry, do we have an update? We're up by one. Yvonne just scored. Hallelujah. Really? Uh, how are you sitting there and not just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to keep looking at you. You better be listening. <laughs> up by one, Yvonne scored. Do we know how long left? Ten minutes left. Okay, so partway through the sermon, I'd like you to just signal me, like a thumbs up or something, okay? And uh, then I'll know. Um, honestly, I mean that. I'd like to know. Uh, so how do we make this transition now? I'm, I'm reading this book right now. I, I found it by looking at another book. That's, that's um, not how that should be. Anyway, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not a problem. Uh, um, and this book is, is one of those books that it's, it's too big. Like, the topic is too dramatic and intense. So it's a book called The... the Oh, um, An Interrupted Life and Letters from Westerbork. It's a young woman named Eddie Hillesom writing in, ne- in the Netherlands uh, during World War II. So this would be the adult equivalent of Anne Frank. In fact, Anne Frank lived just a couple of miles from this young woman who is writing this when she's 27. And you can just, just turn it off. It's fine. It doesn't seem to be working. Um, she's writing when she's 27 and 28, and then she is killed at Auschwitz when she's 29. And it is a fascinating book. She's Jewish, but she quotes the Gospels constantly, and she talks about the need for Jesus Christ, and it's all... And, of course, the first third of it is fairly, in a way, self-indulgent. It's her talking about her life and her love life and all this, and, and you can see the restrictions coming in more and more. And then it turns to be more and more prayer. And she is an absolutely brilliant and beautiful writer. She's a teacher of Russian literature um, at that young age. And so uh, she knows what she's, what she's doing. But it's difficult as a reader, right? Anytime you, 
hear people talking about something like the Second World War and the Holocaust, and it's too big of an example. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm haunted by this book, though, because as many of you know, Jen and I went to Auschwitz a couple of years ago, and I know exactly where she was when she got off the transport. And for some reason, I'm just like a confession as a pastor, I feel almost bad for leaving that place. Like I stood on that ground, but I'm back here now. And what is there that's different for me than for her? So all of this to introduce something I want to pray about right now that also seems too big. And as soon as you mention this kind of thing, it's like, well, how can we wrap our minds around that? And out of the events over the last couple of weeks, well, a week and a half ago in Florida, and we have these young people who will be going back to school tomorrow in that school. Apparently there's an open house today at that school. And then Anne was telling me that there's actually a lockdown drill on Tuesday here on the North Shore. And uh, so I just want to, as we enter into our sermon time, to just pray about these big things in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if the truth of your word, Lord Jesus Christ, if the effect of your sacrifice is somehow to mean anything, it must mean everything. It must reach to the lowest valley. Come, Holy Spirit. Teach us as your people to pray. Bring your healing. Bring your mercy. Protect people from fighting against one another. Thank you for those young people. We pray for the families of those who lost children parents, spouses in that attack. We pray, we thank you for those young people who have decided to take up a cause. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work. We ask your blessing around the United States and here in our own local community, particularly on Tuesday morning with this drill, that there may be some children Uh, teenagers or younger who struggle with anxiety or these types of things that can be overwhelming at times like this. People who are thinking, what if it happens here? So would you be present and teach us? And now open our eyes to see that indeed your blood, Lord Jesus Christ, reaches to the lowest valley. I pray for those gathered here, myself included. We often seek to, we feel better if we feel things in church, and that's good. But would you bless us with a spirit of understanding and insight to give our minds to you, to love you with our whole minds, heart, mind, soul, and strength. So teach us, we pray this morning, in Christ's name, amen. So I have a question that I want to ask you at the beginning, and you can come up in your mind. Maybe you can write it down, and then you won't be able to say, well, actually, the answer you gave is the answer I thought. So you have to write down your answer if you have a pen, and, uh, uh, and then we'll give you the correct answer a little later on, and, and then you can kind of judge yourself, which is wonderful. You're in church, so that's good. Um, 
Here's the question. What is it that makes God, God? So, you could list a few things. You say, well, there's not just one thing, Todd. Yes, I know. But you have to choose one. What is it, a character trait, an attribute, a quality? What makes God, God? So, if you say, well, I'm not going to list just one. Then list a few more. Okay? As we get into the sermon, I'm going to tell you the right answer. All right? And a lot of you will be wrong. Thanks be to God. Glory, hallelujah. What's the score? 3-2. Thank you. Um, God's judgment is entirely enclosed by his mercy. We mentioned this term last week, the week before, called prevenient grace, which means that grace is first and more and above. In other words, as scripture puts it, God loved you in Jesus Christ while you are yet a sinner. His grace comes first. God didn't think, oh no, they've sinned, now what are we going to do? His grace came before that. But there is judgment. We're entering this series, or we're now in third week of it, this series, Why Did Jesus Die? And the heart of it includes God's love, but also God's judgment, setting things right. It wouldn't be right and proper in this world to simply say, well, all the wrong that's ever been done, oh well, it doesn't matter. And that's not how God treats the wrong in the world. He will, according to our scriptures, set things right and bring justice. And you can watch on the news or you know, in stories the longing that people have for justice even after they've suffered tremendous loss. And we are told that God, in the end, will bring justice. So how do we work this out? Well, this is our series, Why Did Jesus Christ Die? And for me, each of us might experience this differently, but for me, the heart of it, that question, why did Jesus Christ die, comes today. In this consideration of lost and found. Sin means that we are lost, and in Jesus Christ, in the cross, we are found and brought home. That is the Christian declaration. Now, you say, well, tell me about that, because it's one thing to say sin means that we are lost, and the cross, in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, we are found. But if somebody says to you, a friend on the street who doesn't know church or Christian faith says, well, what on earth does that mean? What are you going to say next? Well, we'll give you a little bit of that this morning. Why did Jesus Christ die? Because the judgment of God is enclosed in his mercy. So from that... God's love to the cross. And I hope to draw some of that for you today with these three stories from Luke, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. The occasion is this. People have come to Jesus Christ and they've accused him of something. So you have a religious figure, a holy figure, right? Did any of you, don't put your hands up, but did any of you have holiness for what makes God God? You have what people are thinking is a figure of righteousness and holiness, a religious leader, maybe the Messiah. And people are following Jesus Christ, but now comes the accusation. And it's, the, it's an accusation with a judgment. So the accusation is, he eats with sinners. And the judgment is, he therefore can't be God. Jesus sees this, feels this, knows this, hears this. You guys know when someone's judging you, right? 
especially if it's someone religious, if they're rolling their eyes at you and your behavior. I mean, I, I can feel that, and you don't ever feel that. Maybe you do. Well, Jesus knew. Sometimes they said it out loud, and other times he answered a question that they hadn't asked verbally. And in this occasion, they're saying, well, he can't be God, he can't be righteous and holy, because he eats with sinners. And so he tells them a few stories. See, what they had in their minds is what most religions, including distorted Christianity, teaches. They had the world divided into good people and bad people. And God would not have much to do with the bad people other than judging them, correcting them, fixing them, wiping them out, whatever it takes. So the world was divided into good people and bad people. And the implication was, clearly, if you are good, you won't spend time with the bad. The further implication was what? If you are good and you spend time with the bad, that badness rubs off on you. Right? That's how sin works. Right? I'm a good person. I want to be good. But I hang out in this kind of, you know, den of depravity. Now I'm depraved. That's the direction of things. That's certainly the direction of things in the religious mind that was accusing Jesus Christ. It's not that that, isn't, that that doesn't have some truth in it, but Jesus Christ hears this and he offers a corrective. His corrective will change or should. It doesn't necessarily work, but it's offered as a way to change their view of God, their view of sin, and their view of how God works, the kingdom of God. So Jesus hears the accusation and says, let me tell you a few stories. In fact, this is how he teaches about the kingdom of God in most occasions. He will give a sermon, but most times you know that Jesus offers a parable. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who did the following. The kingdom of God is like someone who hired a bunch of workers and paid them all equally, even though some of them barely worked at all. The kingdom of God is like this. So he tells these three stories, and the three stories turn on its head the concept of how sin works, how God works, and what it means to be lost and found. Three stories, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. Though, to be fair, they're mistitled, aren't they? They're misnamed. The stories aren't about the thing that is found. The stories are about those which do the finding or the celebrating after the find. The story of the prodigal son is not about the son and his sin. It is about the love of a welcoming father. You have this concept, how sin works, Jesus says. Let me tell you how sin works, or let me tell you, more importantly, how God works. So he starts the sheep story, and this is very common for Jewish teaching, with a question. But he answers the question himself by telling the story. Which one of you, if you'd lost a sheep, you had a hundred and you lost one, which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 and go out and seek that lost one? On one level, the answer is nobody would do that. That would be insane. To leave 99 to go find one. Unless you secured them and did all that kind of stuff to go and try and find the one. But there would at least be in the listeners' minds a question of like, well, we have to put some conditions on this looking. 
In the story of the coin, a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one and she goes all out. Now, right away, you should be picturing taking the cushions out of your sofa, your couch, and finding all that. What is that in there? She goes all out, turning her house upside down. On one level, there's an of course. Of course I would do that if I was, if I lost something at home. And some of you right now, if I reminded you of some little lost thing that you, and you'd start, then you wouldn't be able to listen to the sermon anymore. Because you're so, I've got to find that. I have to find that. But in other ways, why focus on just one coin? Jesus is going to let that question hang there. In both cases, what's more important than even the finding in some regard, or the looking, is the party that takes place afterwards. And in, in, in many ways, you are to understand the party doesn't make sense. The woman who lost the coin loses a coin, goes crazy seeking it, finds the coin, and then spends more money than the value of the coin on a party celebrating the coin has been found. What kind of person would do this kind of thing? And those of you who are really good at counting think, well, that would be an insane person. And Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is different in terms of its accounting. In both cases, you get the party that in some ways doesn't make sense. And the implication, the emphasis is that God does that when God finds the lost. And the final story drives the point home. The final story should offend you. You've already been somewhat offended by the lack of logic in spending more money than the coin you found is worth. But the final story, and this is often how Jesus and other Jewish teachers would teach, is to send you into the land of, now I'm really offended. And that is, Jesus tells a story about a good-for-nothing son. The man's son basically says to him, I wish you were dead, or you're better dead to me than alive. Give me my inheritance. And he goes off and he squanders the money. And when he's done and desperate, there's no indication that he has some great awakening about how much he loves the father. He just has run out of money. And he wonders, I wonder if I'd be welcome back in my father's house. But the answer in that culture should be no. The father is breaking all kinds of codes and even even allowing that this is still his son. Why would you welcome back someone who has hated you in such a way or broken all the rules? You'll just make him worse. This is an interesting counter to tough love. (laughs) He's done. He's desperate. He has no indication that he has repented. Other than on his walk home, he rehearses a speech that includes some kind of repentance. But when he goes to give the speech to the father, he doesn't get to that point before the dad cuts him off and just embraces him welcomes him back. It's the Mumford and Son song that says, it's not the long walk home that will change his heart, but the welcome that he receives with the restart. He's changed by the love of the Father. He sees it maybe for the first time in his life. And the Father did everything wrong. Many of you, please understand this and I love you, many of you would judge the Father for such atrocious behavior. 
Who would treat a good-for-nothing son like this? You need to be tough. And the party is the greatest offense. And the good, dutiful, moral, older son is absolutely offended by the party, so much so that he can't enter into it. But he's good. Do you get it? Remember the original question? Why is he eating with sinners? And then he tells these three stories. This is the way that the world works. Divide. Good and bad, acceptable, non-acceptable, divisions along ethical, moral, political, religious lines. The older son worked according to these divisions and sought to impress his father and his concept of God. If you have the incorrect answer to the question, what makes God God, then you are tempted at least to be the older son. And we all have the incorrect answer at some points. The language that I like in describing this is the son of God in a far country. This is language from my favorite theologian. And he's going to play quite deeply with this in saying, now he understands that it's not enough to, you can't just say it has to be understood this way. But in some ways he casts Jesus as the prodigal, the one who goes from the father, right? Right into the depth of human depravity and takes on all the sin of the world. So he says, The Son of God goes into the far country, the darkest, deepest place. So you could say that's either somehow the prodigal himself. That might be a stretch. You could certainly say that God himself goes in Jesus Christ to the darkest place to seek and save those who are lost. So, list for me. Don't say it out loud. The attributes that make God, God. Let's go with the first one. Power! The power of God makes God, God. Well, he is powerful. Majesty. He's majestic. He certainly is. Justice. Okay? I'm not countering any of these things. He is all of these things, just and majestic and powerful. Beauty. The beauty of God makes God, God. Sure. Holiness. Is God holy? He is, and this is the proper use of the word, He is absolutely holy. Righteousness. And I would say to you, all those answers have truth in them, but they're not the right answer. What makes God, in Christian understanding, God? It's this. That He goes into the far country into the darkest of all places to seek and save those who are lost. That's his godness. What do you want to worship about him? I love if you worship him and note that he's powerful. It's wonderful. It can be helpful in your understanding. But all kinds of concepts of God that aren't Christian can be powerful. Majestic, beautiful, good. Keep worshiping in such ways, but never, never lose the heart of it. That that which makes God God is that he goes into the darkest place to seek and save those who are lost. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
the blood will never lose its power. There is no God-forsaken person. You declare that there are. Some people themselves might declare that they are. But God won't. He will leave the 99 for you. The woman searching for the lost coin, the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, the father. And as the story is told by Jesus, the image is somehow, you could, you could write it as the father going out and putting posters up and looking for the son, but somehow it is as powerful as Jesus teaches it, more so perhaps to say he was at the end of the road looking for his son. Longing for him to come home. He goes to the darkest, most sin-ridden, despairing places. He lifts up every cushion to find that lost coin. He goes into the muddy and dirty and forgotten places. Will that sheep be there, that wandering sheep? And he goes to the end of the road, looking every day, thinking, will he come back? And when he finds the coin and the sheep and the son, he rejoices. That's what makes God God. What kind of God would do this? If God's prime attribute is holiness, holiness wouldn't do this. Not as we understand it. Power wouldn't do this. You have to give up power to do this. You want a God who saves us from a distance. A superhero God wiping out all the baddies. But in Jesus Christ, God goes into the far country to the farthest places, even the places of sin and despair. So let me try to draw that picture for you. You're in Kathmandu. Going there soon? Pretty soon. Thursday. I've been to Kathmandu. (laughs) Um, It's dusty and noisy and wonderful. But I wouldn't want to get lost there. When I was walking on the streets of Kathmandu and with some people who were here last year and you're walking along and if something happens and you get separated for a couple of minutes and there's crowds and noise and then you look and you see just a little bit down the block or maybe across the street, you see a group of, and it's obvious, they look so obvious, a bunch of Canadian people walking along and it's your people. You, Oh, thank God. I didn't get lost. And when you go with people like Daniel and Karina, you feel that over and over and over and over again. You think, oh, there's Daniel. There's Karina. We're going to be okay. Now, I don't want to equate a city or a group of people with like a sin. But I just want to use this as a metaphor. In self and in sin, you head down a road in life, habits and addiction self-focus, seeking meaning in meaningless things, trying to get your meaning out of something like career or money or pleasure. You head down a certain road and maybe it feels and looks really good, but there's another possibility, living for sin and self and appetite, depending upon yourself and at times hurting others or maybe not caring that much if you do because you're looking out for yourself first. And things get bad and you lose it a lot and you find yourself in some terrible dark place, darkness of mind, spirit, soul, or circumstance. And I can't describe the darkness of that place to you, but you can feel it 
And even if you're a good person, you can sometimes feel those darknesses. And you wind up there. And then you discover this astounding truth. It knocks the air out of you. You fall down and you can't get back up again. You find yourself in that darkest of all places and there he is. Jesus Christ himself. It's 10,000 times more than finding Daniel or Karina when you thought you were lost in a foreign place. In the darkest of all places, there is the Lord of all the universe. Already there. He he will seek and save that which is lost. And then you say, he will bring you home. And somehow there is truth in this. That it's not now that he has to just rescue you out of this place, which he does and will, and make you a new creation. It is that in that moment where you see him in that place, the one who knows all and loves all and is all-powerful and all of those other things, but that's not what make him God. In that moment when you see him in that place, you somehow say to yourself in faith, I am home anywhere if you are where I am. And that is a prayer of repentance. I see this in my mind, in my prayer, in my silence. And I shake my head like this sometimes. Because I think, how could my sin or my selfishness lead Jesus Christ to a place like this? I don't. There's something that pushes back against wanting to see him there. Because that's the place of my greatest depravity. But he's there. And it's, it's my continued self-focus that goes, oh no, why is he here? He shouldn't be here. This is terrible. I've sinned so much, but he's here. Really, the question for me should be, how far would he go? And the answer is, further than you could ever imagine. And the answer is, the cross. Why did he die? In giving his life on the cross, he took all the sin and darkness that the world has ever known. And he took it on himself and he defeated it by his love. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the Son of God in the far country. Those are both the same point. God is the agent and God is the agent. I want you to know that really twice as much. What it should say is, firstly, that God is true to himself. In other words... This is the character that makes God God. The trait, the attribute, is that he gives up. He reaches down. He doesn't remain distant. God turns to us in Jesus Christ. We can turn to him. Just stay with me after this next sentence, okay? Little children are really annoying. No hallelujahs or amen. I won't tell you who I saw head nods from, but anyway... It's true, right? Little children are really annoying. I have a number of little children who are friends of mine, and I think that one of the things they enjoy most, you know, in my interaction with them is when they bother me. That seems to just really... I mean, I have a lot of people like that in general, but kids particularly. I'm bothering Todd now. This must be a good day. There's something when you're young, when you're little, that annoying people can sometimes be wonderful. And do you remember that 
terrible thing. I, I don't know why I was looking at Claudia. I could do this and grab your hand and do this to you. You know that, that kids can do? I don't know if it's still in. Not that this was ever in. Um, they grab your hand and they, they make your, you know. So I grab Angela's hand and I hit Angela's face with Angela's hand. And then what do I say? Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting? See how annoying? They're annoying verbally, physically, everything. Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? What, what's the joke about? The joke is about agency. Who's doing this? And of course, the, in the child's mind, well, you're doing it because your hand is hitting you, right? You get, the, you get the thing? Here's why I tell you that. God goes into the far country in Jesus Christ, and sometimes inadvertently or sometimes directly in our Christian teaching, we can say that he did this because, right? Somebody else tricked him into this, or he had to do this because the devil, or he had to do this because of me, or he went to that place, that's me shaking my head, he went to that place because my sin pushed him there. It was my sin. There's truth in that, but it's not the biggest truth. God himself is the agent. He is the one who went into the far country. You did not make him do that. He did it from his character and his love. And then the next point, which is there, or sorry, which isn't, is that in doing this, God remains true to himself. In other words, if I were somehow to go to the deepest, darkest place, I might be affected by terrible ways by that sin. Jesus Christ, when he goes to the deepest, darkest place, remains God. This is something that only he can do. So you say, well, then why would not if somebody else died on the cross that would save me? Only God himself can go to that darkest, deepest place and remain God. The most high in the deepest humility. If you can't see that, I'll read this for you. I'd like you to ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind to this. The Almighty exists and acts and speaks in the form of one who is weak and impotent. The eternal as the one who is temporal, given to time, right? The eternal as the one who is temporal and perishing. The most high in the deepest humility. That is what makes God, God. The most high in the deepest humility. The Holy One stands in the place and under the accusation of a sinner with other sinners. The glorious one is covered with shame. The one who lives forever has fallen prey to death, given himself over. This is the cross. And there is nothing else that is like this in religious teaching. And we haven't seen near the depth of it. Most everything else divides into good and bad and right and wrong or offers the prescription of how to deal with something bad in the world by power, majesty, and might, division. Or you earn your way by achieving some kind of moral standing. That's the world we live in, and that is most religion, including much of what's improperly taught as Christianity. 
Not much has changed since the day that those people rolled their eyes at Jesus Christ for being with the wrong people. But in the cross, in the cross, and you have to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you, I can tell you. In the cross, there was an old history that was coming to an end. The cross is the last word of an old history, division, power, might, force. The the cross is the last word of an old history and the first word of a new one. A God who will go to the darkest place. I have a song in my head all the time when I teach or speak or consider these points. It's an old Rich Mullins song. He's talking about the birth of Christ. But he says, And the countryside was pocked with all of those mail-a-pouch posters thrown up on the rotting sideboards of these run-down stables. So however you can do that for yourself. Posters that are stuck on the rotting sideboards of run-down stables. And then these words, like the one that Christ was born in. When the old world started dying and the new world started coming on. And I'll sing his song. In the land of my sojourn. Tell me what will make the world right. The problem is evil that needs to be wiped out. The problem is wrongness that needs to be made right. And we need power to do it. God offers another way in a new history. He goes to the far country to seek and save that which is lost. And when he finds it, he doesn't say, you miserable sheep or you horrible son. He throws a party. Son tries to give his speech. I'm not worthy. Just let me stay in the barn. Father stops before he even gets to that point and says, you were lost and you're alive. You're back. And we're going to have a party. This should strike us with a piercing joy that he has taken our place and remained God and defeated sin and death. And certainly the implication is that when I understand where the depth of my sin where I meet him even in the darkest place, then what do I want to do after I get back up on my feet again? I want to live for him instead of for me. Somehow in that I am made a new creation and I discover true and meaningful life. That's Christian faith and teaching. So three things to think as we end. First, that there is sufficiency in this. I have nothing else to add. I can't make this salvation, this finding of me more effective. I have only to respond. Humility. That now the way I see other people, every other person, when you hear somebody on television, now I accept this for someone who has lost someone, right? So in the case of a shooting like in Florida, if you have a family member that has been killed in another family, you have to be gracious in those kinds of things. But in general, we should not be using language like that horrible monster about anybody else. Somehow, Jesus Christ seeks to save victim and perpetrator. What other faith? You should be humble. We should be humble. Because as we know that we were lost and now found, we will not judge anybody else. 
And finally, to understand agency, that God is the agency of this work, we live in grateful response. Let me close before we turn to communion with this prayerful quote. When I see, when I truly see, I will give my life to Jesus Christ. And I seek to do that. I've done that once, but I'm always seeking to do that. To understand that. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. Not because you're powerful, which is wonderful. Not simply because you're majestic, which fills me with awe. Not simply because you're beautiful, which makes me sing. You are worthy because you found even me. So the quote. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. He is the love of God. He is the open heart of God. It is not just that by knowing Christ we can trust Him. In the presence of Christ there is no alternative but to trust Him. So of course if you've never prayed this to accept Jesus Christ to respond to the one who loves you in such a way, then you pray, Lord Jesus Christ, show me what it means to trust in you. I give my life to you. And we turn to communion now. It's perfect, of course. He has given his life. This is my body broken for you. What should you pray as you receive this bread as we pass it out? Dear God, help me to see that you've gone to the darkest places, even to death on a cross. My body, Jesus says, broken for you. And we know that he took that cup after supper. And this is the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of sin. This is our reminder that there is no God-forsaken place. Come, Holy Spirit. We say you are welcome to take communion in this place if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. Of course, it's entirely up to you in those decisions, but that's the guide we offer. Uh, We also offer each time or most times we say if you want to let the communion pass by, then please don't feel like you're lesser than anybody else who takes it. And even if you're a Christian and you want to let that communion pass by, it might be good to do, to do that if you have something to make right in your life, someone where there's a broken relationship, you need to ask forgiveness or you need restoration. And then you come back again the next week and you receive the bread and the cup and you see uh, how wonderful reconciliation is. So, ushers can come forward.